Well, hey, good to be with you guys this morning. I am excited to, uh, to be with you guys today as I get to kick off our brand new summer series that we are calling Summer in the Psalms for the next 10 weeks uh, or so. We're, we're going to be exploring these songs of Scripture and their open invitation to us to journey deeper into our relationship with the Father. Really, this is the heart of the Psalms, friends. It's to draw us, the readers, uh, regardless of whatever circumstances or life situations we might find ourselves in, it's to draw us deeper and into a more intimate encounter with the living God. Through the Psalms, we're not only invited into moments of worship and celebration and thanksgiving, right, those high points of life, but we're also invited into those, those very real life circumstances as well. You know, through the, the human authorship of guys like King David, Right? We're drawn into so many of life's challenging moments as well, moments of pain and grief and sorrow, moments of disappointment and discouragement, utter despair, right? Oh God, where are you? And yet, in spite of the circumstances we might face, the Psalms, through their authenticity, their transparency, right? through their, the, 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 the rawness of human emotion and human experience that they portray, they remind us, each of them, of the character of God. His goodness, His love, His faithfulness, His desires for us, how He longs to meet with us in, in every moment of life. And this is, this is what I love about the Psalms, is that they're an invitation for us to be refreshed, to, to be strengthened, to, to increase our trust in God, to draw deeper into our relationship with Him and to be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so over the next number of weeks, it's our, our hope and our desire that regardless of where we're at, maybe on our spiritual journey, regardless of what season we might find ourselves in, over the summer as we dive into these songs that each of us would encounter in, in a more deep and meaningful way, the God of the, the Psalms, the God of Scripture. Uh, so that's our prayer this summer. Sound good? Yeah, awesome. All right, thank you. Thank you. Well, this morning, uh, as this, this sermon, this message is the first one in this series in the Psalms, we thought, what better a place to start than Psalm 1, right? So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to come on out. Psalm 1, I'm going to be reading this psalm for us. The screen will also have the words on it as well, so you can track along there. But uh, yeah, Psalm chapter 1, and I'm reading out of the New King James Version this morning, all right? Psalm chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord for us today. And it reads this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He, the blessed man, shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Well, while this first psalm is quite different than the rest of the other 149 psalms, I don't know if you picked that up or caught that, but it's quite different, right? The psalms are like songs. They're, they're these heartfelt prayers, and yet this is kind of more like a wisdom saying. 
This is probably something that would better be suited in the book of Proverbs, we would think, or the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet here it is. It's Psalm number one, right? It's the, it's the introduction to this, this book of, of songs. And really, friends, it sets the stage for what's to come. You see, I, I like to call this psalm a psalm of destiny. In other words, it communicates to the reader that, you know, this, this is what your life could look like. This is actually what your life should look like. You, you should be a, a tree planted by the rivers of water. You should be fruitful in every season, not losing your leaves, right? This idea of, uh, of being sustained by the presence of God. And friends, it's not just what our lives could look like. I'll be as bold as to say that this is actually God's ideal for each of our lives. This is, this is his destiny for us, for you and for me. This, this is what our lives could be like, a life that's blessed, a life that's fruitful, a life that finds our, our strength and our sustenance and, uh, and our protection through every season of life in the presence of God. And it's a life that's intimately known by and cared for by the Father. This is why I call it a psalm of destiny. It's a, it's a prophetic picture given to us by God of the amazing life that he's calling each of us into. However, as we're going to see this morning, this, this blessed life, this destiny it's actually only able to be achieved if we make Jesus our pursuit. See, he's got to be our priority. There's, there's this, we see it in the psalm and we see it all throughout scripture. There's this inextricable link, this interconnection between uh, the, the relationship that we have with God and, and his destiny for our lives. It's only as those two kind of meet in the middle that, that all that comes to, to become reality. And this is why I'd say this psalm, it acts as the foundation for which all the other psalms kind of build themselves on, because it communicates this truth to us, friends, that we're only actually going to experience God's desire for our lives if we fix our eyes on Jesus, or, or as, we, as we surrender our personal agendas to his agenda, as we seek to be influenced and shaped and molded, not by the, the world or those around us or by the culture, but seek to be shaped and molded by his voice and his presence and it says we apply the, the words of, yes, the Psalms, but this, this whole book called Scripture, the Bible, as we apply it to our hearts and, and to our lives. You see, the Psalms, they're not just songs to be sung. They're not just these prayers to resonate with in, in every kind of emotional season we might find ourselves in. They are these things, but they're also more. You see, the Psalms are God's words to us. It's God speaking to us. Body, soul, spirit, right? Deep calling out to deep. It's God revealing his heart to his people. And then it's him calling us into an encounter with him whereby he, he changes us, he transforms us more into the likeness of Jesus. And, and he, 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 he enables us to live this abundant life. And isn't this what Jesus promised us in John chapter 10? Right, John 10, 10, what does he say? I've come that they, that, that you and me, we might have life. We might have it more abundantly. See, this is God's desire for us. It's this blessed life, this abundant life. And if we're ever going to see this become reality, not just a, a far-off destiny, but reality, then what we pursue in life, friends, it really matters. It, it really matters. You see, it's all about the pursuit. And this is why that psalm's so foundational. It, it lays the groundwork just establishing uh, to us, friends, today of Jesus needs to be our number one pursuit. You see, what we pursue, we become like. Would you agree? And so if we're not pursuing Jesus, then we're not becoming like Jesus. And we're not going to experience that, that blessed life that we see here in Psalm 1. So let's, let's dig into this psalm a little more this morning, and let's find out how we can make this become a reality. 
All right. Now, when this psalm starts off, it's kind of interesting that it describes this blessed life, right? He says, blessed is the man. But then he, he doesn't describe what the blessed man is like. He actually describes what the blessed man is not like. Did, did you catch that? If you, if you missed it, let me just read that once more for us. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Right? It's curious. You'd think that he says, blessed is the man who, then he would outline what the blessed man does, what he looks like, what he, what he believes, what, what, what the, the attitudes of his heart are, but he doesn't do that. He flips it, and he says, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, who doesn't look this way. Now, now why would he do that? Right? Why would the author kind of flip it that way? It doesn't really make sense logically. I think it's because he's trying to draw our attention to the importance and the necessity of what we are pursuing in life. You see, this language of walking, of standing, of sitting, it's actually a metaphor for the moral pursuit of our hearts. You see, the blessed man, he, he doesn't pursue these things. Instead, he pursues something totally different. The author is drawing our attention to the importance and the necessity of what we are pursuing in life. And then also, he, he's pointing out to us, he's showing us, he's saying, pay attention to how easily we can find ourselves distracted from that real goal. You see, by doing this, by, by saying what the blessed man is not like, the, the author is saying, pay attention to, to where you walk, where you stand, where you sit. Pay attention to where you spend your time. Pay attention to whom you spend your time with. Pay attention to what you're listening to. Pay attention to what you're allowing into your mind and into your heart. Because whether you realize it or not, that there is a very real tendency for the values and the, and the beliefs and the morals and the ethics, the, 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 the pursuits of those people that are surrounding us, for their pursuits to kind of rub off on us and for their pursuits to become our pursuits. What we pursue, we become like. Uh, has anyone ever experienced, maybe you've lived in a, a country that's not Canada for a significant period of time? Yeah, a few of you. Awesome. Yeah. That's great, and, and maybe you can tell from experience, when you, when you immerse yourself into a different culture, right, a place that has different language, they have different values and, and cultural customs, what happens as, as you live there for this extended period of time? What happens? You, you kind of start to change a little bit, don't you? You start to adopt some of their, their values. Maybe you're like, your appetite changes or your taste buds. You grow a new appreciation for some kind of ethnic food. Maybe you get climatized, right, and you're like, man, it's really warm there, really cold there, and you kind of don't really realize that until you head back home. What, what, maybe, maybe your worldview starts to change and adapt, right? Rather than having a Western worldview like we do here in Canada, you, you have more maybe of an Eastern worldview or a, just a global worldview. So there's, there's this idea of changing and adapting, right? And, um, and sometimes this happens is where the way that we speak actually changes as well. Has anyone come across this? Yeah, it's, it's like Google it. It's a, it's a phenomenon. It's a thing. You, you immerse yourself into a culture, and actually, sometimes the way you speak starts to change. My, my brother-in-law and his wife and their family, they've been living in Australia for seven years now. And while they were born in Canada, man, while they were raised in Canada, you know, they're, they're kind of like mid to late 30s now, so kind of 25, 30 years old they spent in Canada. And now, they've been living in Australia for the past seven years. And over the course of that time, their accents have actually started to change. And they've started sounding a little more like an Australian than they do a Canadian, and it's kind of wild. And the craziest part is, is that they haven't even noticed that this subtle shift has taken place. Right? My, my, my mother, and, or my mother-in-law, and my, my wife's parents, they went and hung out 
in Australia for uh, six weeks this year, while they're hanging out with them, they kind of started drawing attention. They're like, hey, you guys kind of talk funny. And they're like, no, we don't, mate, right? And uh, they, they didn't say that, but maybe they did. Um, right? So they, they weren't even aware. It, was, it wasn't until this was kind of pointed out to them that, that they started realizing, oh, I guess maybe the way that we talk, our inflections, our vocal tones, whatever, it's actually started to uh, adapt to the culture that we're being immersed in. You see, it's crazy, and they're not even aware that this has taken place over time. Friends, I think the reason that the psalm writer begins this psalm the way he does, but by drawing our attention to what the blessed man is not like, it's because the same thing that happened to my in-laws, right? As they're immersed in this culture and it starts rubbing off on them, influencing them, they start adapting some of these cultural patterns and this accent The same principle is true when it comes to the values and the beliefs and the attitudes, the the, the pursuits of the people that we we kind of spend time with, the people that we surround ourselves with. You see, if we're not careful, if we're not vigilant, man, if we fail to recognize the potential threats that that are around us, whether it's a particular friend or, or maybe it's even a family member. I know for some of us, it's like our work group is a pretty maybe toxic environment, but we're forced to be there because we got to work and make money and supply for our family. And let's be honest, maybe it's even somebody that you're sitting beside in church this morning, right? Let's not kid ourselves. As Christians, we're not perfect people. Everyone's looking beside them now, right? Of like, is it you? Is it me? Oh, no, right? Fifth statistic safe. No, just kidding, um, right? But, but if, if we're not mindful of this, about who we're surrounding ourselves with, the reality is that that there's a very real potential that we could find ourselves being subconsciously influenced by those people, and sometimes in a devastating way. And I have have friends I grew up with, they grew up in the church, some of them this church, godly parents went to uh, good school, sometimes Christian school, but because of the people they surrounded themselves in, because of the, the things that they didn't, they didn't guard themselves and they, they allowed into their hearts, the things they started Googling on the internet, researching, reading about, watching about. Friends, their pursuit, because of these, these things that they allowed into their lives, they weren't vigilant against it. It started to change their pursuits. And now rather than pursuing Jesus, these friends are pursuing something totally different altogether. And it's tragic. So there, there is a very real danger here, and I think the psalm writer is, is trying to draw our attention to that, and that's why he describes the ways that these people are not like. The blessed man is not like this and this and this, right? So he talks about the ungodly, the, the sinners, the scornful, because he's saying to us, pay attention to, to what you allow into here. Pay attention because what you allow into your heart will inevitably become what you pursue, and what you pursue is what you become like. You see, maybe we, how do we contextualize this to, to our audience today? We don't really use those words of like the scornful person. Oh, there's a scornful gym at Safeway, right? Like, stay away. Stay away from the scornful gym. We don't use language like that. So how do we, how do we contextualize this to today? All right, well, so p- perhaps these, these idea of the ungodly, the, the sinners, the scornful, maybe it translates to those whose beliefs and values are, are not the beliefs and values of, of the Bible, of God's kingdom, Maybe they're those people whose values and beliefs have been shaped instead by, by the culture of today, right? Our tolerant culture. Maybe they're those who, whose, whose values have been shaped by, by media, right? The over-sexualization of media that promotes promiscuity and f- sexual freedom. Maybe it's people's values who have been shaped by the, the government of our day that, that says, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and legalize marijuana, 
right? Or let's, let's just intentionally degrade Christian values on things like marriage and gender identity, uh, on things like the sanctity of life, right? Euthanasia, yeah, let's just go for it. Let's do it. Or what about those, those people, man, who are just always cynical, always angry, always just ticked off about something, bitter. Those people who are always defeated, always the victim in life. And then there's those who are all too often judgmental of those around them who are petty, who are vengeful, hateful, deliberately insensitive. And what about those people who, at the expense of those around them, they kind of put others down so they can build themselves up? Or those people who are more worried about, you know, the appearance uh, or their appearance before man than their, their position before an all-powerful, all almighty, holy God? Or what about those people who lie? who cheat on their taxes, who withhold their truth from their parents, their kids, or their spouse, or the government. Right? I think that's, that's how we can contextualize this to, to our day and age, to, to this audience, right? The sinners, the scornful. Friends, it's, it's, if we're not mindful about who and about what we're allowing to speak into our lives, if we're not vigilant against the influences of those around us and, and what we're allowing into our hearts, what we're allowing to, to shape us from the inside out. It's only a matter of time before our pursuit of Jesus becomes a pursuit of something different. And what we pursue, we become like. And when we become, become like the ungodly friends, that, that life, that blessed life that's described for us here is someone. It's, it's not attainable. It's not attainable. And, and this is why the psalmist draws our attention to this. Now, now let me just be clear for a moment. All right, what I am not advocating for this morning is that after today's you know, worship experience, everybody goes home and we start writing a list of all those people who are, you know, scornful Jim from Safeway. We start writing all, if you're a Jim and you work at Safeway, I apologize. And you start writing this list of all these people in your life, right? And then you just start like cutting, the, cutting your, those people out of your, your lives, right? Wrecking relationships. You throw bombs at work, not literally, please, but you throw like bombs into the, the work group and you're like, I can't be friends with you and you and you and you because Pastor Nick said not to, Right? I'm not saying we do this. This is extreme. That's actually not what I'm advocating for at all here today, all right? I'm not saying we need to avoid spending time with people that are far from God or people whose, whose values and beliefs and attitudes don't line up with Scripture. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. I'm not saying that. In fact, I actually am arguing the opposite, right? that we should be spending time with the ungodly and the, and the sinners and the scornful, just like Jesus did, right? I mean, come on, look at his life. He, everything he did, he modeled for us that we would follow after him. So look who he spent his time with. Yeah, I'm his disciples, but who else? Man, it's tax collectors. It's sinners. It's the unclean. It's prostitutes. It's, it's the ungodly. These are the, the people he's spending time with, the spiritually impoverished, right? What does he say in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verse 31? It's not the, the healthy who need a doctor, but the, the sick, Right? It's the sinners. It's those who are opposed to God. These are the people Jesus came for. And friends, consequently now, as those who are following after Jesus, these are the people who we're called to go after now as well, right? To seek and to save, to chase after, to preach good news to, to declare and proclaim healing over them and, and restoration and forgiveness of sin and freedom. These, these are the people we got to go after. These people are actually our greatest ministry, Right? And so we can't just cut these people out of our lives ruthlessly. Now, now of course, we also need wisdom here, though. Right? We've got, we got to use wisdom. 
Now, I'm saying don't, don't go and put yourself into a scenario where you know that you're going to be led to sin. That, that's not wise. That would be unwise. I was going to say a different word, but I won't because that's unkind, right? So don't, don't make silly decisions. Be, be wise. Use wisdom here. Be, be careful where you spend your time. Be, be careful and mindful about who you're spending your time with. Maybe wisdom would say you need to limit the time that you spend with this individual. Maybe wisdom would say, depending on what's going on in your world, you actually just need to establish healthy, God-honoring boundaries in these relationships. I have friends who've actually had to say to their mom and dad, hey, mom and dad, we love you, but you can't talk that way in front of us or our kids. You just can't. Right? So establishing boundaries, healthy boundaries. They're not just exiting mom and dad out of their lives, right? But, but they're, they're using wisdom here. So I'm, I'm not advocating that we just, you know, throw caution to the wind, and if we have an issue with lust, we go and hang out with prostitutes in downtown Calgary. Please don't do that. That's not wise, right? But I'm also not saying we need to just start cutting people out of our lives left, right, and center. Scornful Jim, you're out of here, right? Just sending all these people away. I'm not saying either of those. I'm saying we need to use wisdom. And friends, we need to be intentional to protect ourselves from the ungodly influences of others. We need to be vigilant and protect our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, right? Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the, the wellspring of life. You see, what we allow into our hearts, we pursue. What we pursue, we become like. And while it's God's desire that we would become like Him, right, we got a very real enemy whose mandate is to steal and to kill and to destroy and to, and to pull us away from pursuing Jesus to pursuing something else. So we, we got to be on guard. We need to be vigilant. So how do, how do we do that? Right? How do we do this effectively? How, how do we stay mindful about who and, and what we're allowing into our lives? How do we stand vigilant against those, those influences around us that would seek to penetrate our heart and shape us into something other than the image of Jesus? Now, how do we ensure that Jesus is only ever our pursuit, nothing else? If we're going to do this, then we got to do two things, all right? And... It could be 17 things, right? But I'm trying to stay true to the text this morning. So what we see here in Psalm 1, two things the author speaks about. The other, two things the author promotes. And the first one is this, that we feed our hearts so full of truth that there's no room for anything else to, to enter in and to grow and to contaminate us from the inside out. We feed our hearts full of truth. And then number two, out of the overflow of what's in our hearts, that truth, we use that truth as our weapon to tear down the lies and the schemes of the enemy. Going back to the text for a moment, let me just kind of show you where I'm, where I'm pulling this from. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, right? We're in church. So everybody's godly, right? We're good to go. And, uh, but I'm, I'm going to say something a little bold here, okay? Can we handle bold once in a while? Yeah, a few of you are like, no. I'm like, too bad. All right, here we go, okay? Something bold. It's maybe a little brash. And I, I'm sorry, not sorry kind of a thing. But let me just say this. If, if this book is not your delight, let me say that. If this book is not your delight, if you're not making it a regular practice to spend time in and to, to read and to soak in and to reflect upon and to, and to nurture and feed your soul, to digest into your heart the divinely inspired words that are found in Scripture, if you're not pursuing Jesus, the living word, through his written word, 
It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for, for 5, 10, 15, 50 years, friends. I'm telling you this. If you're not making it a regular practice to read and soak in and live out the truths that are in Scripture, right, in the, the, the authoritative, infallible, inerrant, and, and, and divinely inspired words of God, then it is only a matter of time before you're going to find yourself influenced by the voices around you versus God's voice and His presence. Voices like the culture. Voices like the experiences of others that would negate the truths of Scripture. Voices like the unbelief and the cynicism and the spiritual and health of those people who may be around you. Voices like the lies of the enemy of your soul. See, there's a reason why the, the psalmist states that those who are living this prosperous, blessed life that, that there are those who take delight in the law of the Lord. That there are those who long for and desire and, 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 and consider a joy to, to know the Scriptures inside and out. Friends, it's not because this book in and of itself is a means to an end. All right? Let's not think that. But it's because this, this book is the gateway into a, a passionate love affair with the Creator and Sustainer and Lover of our souls. See, that's why they delight in the law of the Lord. It's because... This, this blessed man in Psalm 1, he, he longs to know more deeply, and to know more intimately him. Not, not just the Bible, but him, the, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. Like, the one in whom we find life. You see, we don't study the Bible to know more about the Bible. We study the, the Bible so we can know the author of its words. Jesus. Amen? And see, this is, this is why the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, because he delights in the Lord. Does that make sense? And regardless of what he already knows, regardless of what he has already experienced in life, he knows, friends, that there is always more. There's always more. There's always a new depth. There's, there's always a new truth to be found. There's always a new promise that God's just waiting for us to encounter so he can just go, there you go, there you go. I'm going to give that to you. That's yours. There's always more, friends. I love what our friend Rob Reamer says. He says, ever grateful. Ever grateful. Always thankful for God for what he's done, but never satisfied. Relentlessly pursuing God for more. Right? It's the same as what the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, I keep asking, I keep praying, I keep entreating on your behalf that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that you may know him better. Isn't that good? That we would know him more. Not just about him, but know him more. Isn't that what you want for yourself? Isn't that what you want for your kids, for your spouse, for all those around you, is to know him more? I know I do. So why does this blessed man delight in the law of the Lord? It's because that's where he finds his God. That that's where he learns about the character and the nature of God, of who God is, of, of who God says we are, how we're his kids, how we're his chosen possession, right? How we're his beloveds. And it's, it's here where he learns of the amazing promises that are, that are his, right? As he pursues Jesus relentlessly. And it's here where he finds true food that will nourish and feed his soul that will fill his heart and that will transform him from the inside out into the image and likeness of Jesus. Friends, we don't read the Bible to know more about the Bible. 
We study scripture to know its author, Jesus, the word become flesh, and to fill our hearts with his truths. Amen? His truths. You see, if our hearts are so full of truth, then, then there's no room for anything else, is there? If our hearts are overflowing with the truth of God, there's no kind of ready soil for, for the enemy to start sowing seeds of disbelief and doubt and cynicism and sin into our lives. That's why we've got to fill our hearts with truth. We've got to fill our hearts with truth. Truths of who God is. Truths of who he says he is, who he says we are. Truths of his kingdom, his values. We've got to fill our hearts with truth. The blessed man is he who takes delight in the Lord and so fills his heart with the truth of God's word that there's no more room for anything else to come in. So how, how do we protect ourselves from, from, from walking, from standing, from sitting in these places of the ungodly, from hearing the counsel of the ungodly, being with the scornful? Right? How, how do we ensure that Jesus forever remains our pursuit? We delight in the Lord, in the, in the law of the Lord. We delight in His truth. We fill our hearts with truth. And then, and then the second part, out of the overflow of the truth that's in our hearts, we, we use it as our weapon to tear down the lies and the influences and the schemes of the enemy. One, once more back to the text, let me just show this to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. In his law he meditates day and night. Now, I want to ask you a question here. If I were a gambling kind of guy, I would venture to bet that when I say meditation, you probably don't think of a Christian practice. Would, would, I, would that be okay? Would that be honest? Would, you, would I be right in assuming that? You probably think, when you, th when you hear meditation, you think of something like an Eastern religious practice or like this new agey kind of thing, right? Meditation. And, and so wh why do I kind of guess that? Why do I assume that when we think of meditation, it's not a Christian thing? Well, let me say, uh, I'll tell you this. Last night I was um, doing a little Google search, and I just typed in meditation, and boom, 293 million results pop up. 293 million on meditation. I started scouring through these, these different um, ads that are on Google, right? Ten pages worth, friends, and I was yet to find anything remotely close to Christianity. Anything talking about Jesus, about God, Yahweh, the Bible, nothing even close to Christianity about meditation. There, there was lots of words on things like yoga, Reiki, chakras, chanting, Buddhism, Hinduism, transcendental meditation, even sexual meditation, right? I didn't click on the link, don't worry, right? But there's, there's all these things, even the health benefits of meditation, but nothing to do with the, the, the biblical meditation that we are talked about or told about here in Psalm 1. And I'm like, no, no wonder Christians kind of get this gross feeling in their stomach when we hear the word like meditation, where we, where we see a command that says, and he meditates on the law day and night. The idea of meditation day and night, it actually, it's this meaning of ceaselessly, day and night, day and night, all the time, never ending, always meditating on the, on the word of God. And so, so how do we reconcile this idea of, you know, this, this Eastern religious idea of meditation and maybe our, our hang-ups or our fears of what meditation is or, shouldn't, or should be, right? And then what does this have to do? I'll ask that question. What, what does this have to do with using the, the truths of God's word as our weapon against the schemes of the enemy? Well, I did a little bit of research on, on Eastern religious meditation and its purpose, and, and what it kind of invites its practitioners to do. And, and the purpose of it, friends, is to actually empty your mind. Empty your mind. Empty yourself. 
escape from reality. Open yourself up to these unknown spiritual powers to kind of come into your, into your being, your inner being, and you know, empower you, give you peace, bring you healing and health. It's actually a little bit more than sketchy, all right? It's more than that. You know, you think of, of yoga. It's, it's this, this quote-unquote harmless thing. It's Easter meditation. Did you know that every, every different pose of yoga is actually a different act of worship and veneration to a Hindu god? And then the, 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 you know, the namaste kind of a thing and the, and the chanting that you do, that's, that's an invocation over yourself and into yourself of these other religious deities, these false gods. Friends, it's more than sketchy. I'm just telling you right now. Google it for yourself, but it's, it's more than not cool. And, and so that's what I'm saying. Like we we got to realize that there's a difference between worldly meditation or Eastern religious meditation, New Age meditation, and biblical meditation. You see, well, well Eastern meditation says clear your mind, free your mind. Don't think, just, just be, om, right? B- biblical meditation actually is the opposite, the exact opposite, is fill your mind. Be intentional with your thoughts. Not, not this subconscious, unconscious thing, but be intentional, be actively involved in, in, in this, this mulling over again and again and again of the truths of God's word. Fill your mind with God's truth. It's not empty your mind, it's fill it. It's fill it, friends. And so that's what we're commanded to do here. You see, as we, as we mull over the truths of God's word, as we, as we kind of digest it further and further, friends, it penetrates deeper and deeper into our soul, deeper into our hearts. And we're drawn into a, in a deeper relationship with the Father, and we're, we're drawn closer and closer and closer to his heart. See, that, that's true meditation. That's biblical meditation. It's this, it's this inward thing. It's kind of like, it's kind of gross to say, but um, it's like a cow or a camel. You know how they chew their cud. Right? Any farmers out there? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And so, and so they, they digest food, and they chew on it, and then they, they kind of bring it back up, and they chew on it some more, and they swallow it, and they just chill out for a while. Then they're like, oh, it's time to chew again. And they, they bring it, and they chew on it, right? It's kind of gross. But that, friends, that's biblical meditation, actually. I'm, I'm being serious. I learned this from Pastor Sandy. You can talk to him later. Biblical meditation, it's, it's, it's this idea of chewing on the cud, right? We, we ingest into our hearts the truths of God's word. Hagah, yeah. And, and, then we, and then we bring it back out and we mull over it again and again and we let it permeate deeper into our soul, deeper into our hearts, deeper into our being. However, biblical meditation is not only an internal exercise. Friends, it's actually also an external exercise. Hagah, the, the Hebrew word, you know, hagah, it's kind of cool, right? And uh, it means to mutter. It means to moan, to growl, hagah. Come on, do it with me, it's fun. Hagah, Right? <laughs> It's this idea of speaking actually out loud what, what you're meditating on. You see, in biblical times, the Jews, when they would meditate, they would actually just recite again and again and again, muttering to themselves the truths of God's word. They would recite scripture. That's meditation. And as they're reciting it out loud, what they're actually doing is declaring it over themselves, over their, their families, over their circumstances. They're declaring the truth of who God says he is, of what God says he's going to do, of who God says I am, of what God has promised. They're declaring it. It's this declaration of truth. It's not just this internal little thing where we kind of you know, focus and close our eyes really tight. It's actually this, this, this outward act, this demonstrative thing where we're declaring the truth of God's word, friends. That, that's meditation. It's declaration of truth. And I'm going to argue this. It is our weapon. And it's our weapon against the schemes of the enemy. You know, why, why do I say that? Why do I argue that? Because it was Jesus' weapon against the temptations of the enemy. Come with me to Luke chapter 4. 
A very familiar passage to to us of this house and and many of you. Luke 4, right? Jesus has just been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been baptized. And it's by the Spirit that he's led out into the wilderness to do this 40-day fast where he, he doesn't eat anything. And all the while, right, it says that he's being tempted by the devil, by Satan. The devil shows up and he's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull you off course, Jesus. Here we go. Before you even start your ministry, I'm going to ruin you. And so what happens? He tempts him, right? And he says, oh, Jesus, you're hungry. Well, why don't you just take that stone and turn it into bread? But what does Jesus say? Did you notice what he says? Friends, he declares truth, doesn't he? He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then the devil's like, all right, I'm going to try it again. So he takes Jesus up to this high point, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you would just bow down to me and worship me, every single one of these would be yours, Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Friends, he meditates. Out of the the truth that's in his heart, he pulls it up, and he declares it over himself and over his situation, and he says, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And, And then the devil tries to get a little more tricky, right? And he actually starts using scripture to kind of fight against Jesus. But in every bit of you know, truth, there's so much lie with the enemy, right? He tries to make it sound truthful, but it's all deceit. And so what, is, what does Jesus do a third time, right? When, when the, the devil says, hey, you know, we're at this high place, just jump in and God will protect you. The angels will catch you. Don't worry, you'll be fine, you'll be legit. And what does Jesus say? He says, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Do you, do you see what's going on here? Jesus is ingesting. He has, he, he, he's, he's brought into his heart. He's filled his heart with the truth of God's word. And, and then he's, he's able, friends, to bring it out, to, 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 to use it as his weapon, to tear down the lies and the schemes of the enemy. You see, it's his weapon. It's his weapon. And what happens in that moment? The devil leaves, doesn't he? The devil leaves him. You see, friends, out of the overflow of his heart, Jesus used that truth of God's word as his weapon, and so too can we. We see Paul talking about the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, right? That famous passage on the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, the truth of God's word, it is our weapon. It is our offensive tool to push back the enemy, to push back temptation, to push back the voices of the culture and the world that would try to negate our Christian values and our Christian morals, And it's as we meditate on the truth of God's word, as we declare it over ourselves and over our situations and circumstances, it's as we proclaim God's victories over our lives, as we proclaim his victory over our relationships and the people we come into contact with, the people we get to minister to, instead of, you know, them influencing us, it's actually now the opposite. It's us beginning to influence them, amen? You see, we're called to be influencers for the kingdom. We're called to be harbingers of grace, harbingers of of hope and peace and reconciliation and justice, right? We're supposed to stand up for the kingdom and declare with our mouths who Jesus is and who he's made us to be in relationship with him and the amazing life that he's calling us into, each of us, me and you. We're called to be influencers. I think it's time we start declaring a little more truth. Would you agree? It's time we start meditating a little more We shouldn't be afraid of that other kind of stuff. We should be afraid of that, but not of meditation. True biblical meditation. We've got to make it a regular practice where we're filling our hearts and we're mulling over it and we're declaring truth over ourselves. We can only do that if we have it here. Would you agree? We can only do it if if we know it, declaring it over ourselves. So how is this blessed man in Psalm 1 able to be like a tree? A tree planted by the rivers of water, right? How is he able to stand firm against the temptations of the ungodly? 
of the sinners, of the scornful? How is he able to be you know, fruitful, his leaves not withering in every season? Every season, he's, he's always lush, he's always in bloom, he's always producing fruit, right? How is he able to, to stand so strong and in everything he does, the psalm writer says, to prosper? How is this able to take place? It's because he delights in the law of the Lord. Right? He delights in, in the Lord. He's in a relentless pursuit of Jesus. He wants more of Jesus. He's, he's always grateful, but he's never satisfied. And he always knows there's more. And then it's also in the law and the truths of God's word that he meditates, that he declares over himself. He declares over his situations, over his circumstances. He declares it over his finances. Right? We just did this this morning, didn't we? That was awesome. We're declaring truth, friends, over our financial situations as, as individuals, as a family, as a church, and then over, over this, this, this house. We're declaring God's truth over it, that he, that he is a provider, that he is faithful, that he's prosperous. That's, that's meditation. That's, that's a declaration. And so how is this, this blessed man able to stand strong? It's because he does this. He delights in the law of the Lord, and in his word he meditates day and night. His eyes are ever fixed on Jesus right? Always fixed on Jesus. I love how the psalm writer closes off this first passage, or this, this passage, this first psalm in verse 6 when he writes these words. He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word know in the original language is yada, yada, and it actually means, it literally means to know intimately, it's the same word that was used in Genesis 4.1 when we read that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Yada. The psalm writer says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's a knowledge, it's experiential, and it can only come, friends, from deep trust, from deep relationship, from deep intimacy. I don't know about you, but I sure want to be known by the Lord that way. And I, and I want to know him that way. Are you with me in that? I love that. That's the blessed man. That's the, the righteous man. They're those who are known by the Lord. And I would say they're also those who know the Lord. Why? Because their delight is in him. He is the object of their affection. He is their pursuit, always and ever only, Jesus. And friends, this life that we see, it's our destiny. It's the life that God's calling each of us into, this blessed life, prosperous, prosperous life. And it can be ours, not just our, our future destiny, it can be our reality as we pursue Jesus all the more. Amen? Amen. So in closing, I just want to ask a couple questions. And I'm just going to encourage you to quiet your hearts. I'll take two minutes. Just quiet your heart. Just focus on Jesus. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to you. And the first thing I just want to ask is what needs to be left behind today? What needs to be left behind? Is it a bad attitude? Is it an ungodly worldview? A certain behavior? Is it an excuse for not going deeper with Jesus? Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's laziness. But what, what needs to be left behind today? Ask him. Just wait on him. He'll speak to you. 
And the second question is this. What needs to be welcomed today? What needs to be embraced? What do you want or need from Jesus that only he can bring you? Is it a greater delight for his word? For his truth? For him? Is it a greater passion for pursuit? Is it a greater wisdom? Ask him. Cry out to him. Call on him. He'll answer you. thank you that you're so good that you're faithful and that it's your desire God to know us more to trust yourself more and deeper, more intimately Lord I pray that that would be our desire as well our greatest desire God to pursue you so Lord these things that you've by your spirit that you've identified in each of us today these things that need to be left behind, these things that need to be surrendered to you, even these things that need to be repented of. God, thanks for leading us in that. Now, God, give us the courage and the strength that's only from you to just just surrender all that to you, to leave it behind, and to walk in this newness, this fullness of life that you're offering to each of us today, God. Lord, I pray for my friends. Lord, that each of us today would be like that blessed person. Would be like that strong tree that has been planted, God, strategically by you, by rivers of living water. God, would we find our sustenance and our and our our being in your spirit, in your presence. We make it our are the desire of our heart to be motivated and, and, and directed by your voice, God, always. No, we want to be changed by you from the inside out. So Holy Spirit, come. Do a sanctifying work in us, we pray. God, we love you. We give you the glory. Amen. Amen.